If I have not had the opportunity to meet you, my name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church, and we are in the third of a three-week series called Together. And let me just take a minute and share with you the vision of this series. Uh, The vision of this series is to walk out of 2020 together in vision and unity and love. When we walked into 2020, we did a series called Together, and we had, like you did, hopes and dreams and ambition. And did your hopes and dreams and ambitions work out in 2020? Probably not, um, like the rest of the world. But the Lord had something very different for everyone. And we put this before him with open hands, and we say, Lord, our life is yours. Our expectations are yours. We want only and ever what you want for us. And, and so because of the choices of mankind, because of the things God allows, ordains, or permits, um, we find ourselves in a crazy year. And never has there been more of a propensity for the church to turn in on itself and be divided against itself. And our desire is to rise above that. So this three-week series is about helping us move forward out of this year in vision and unity and love. And five simple words summarize the vision that Jesus gave the church. It says, go, Matthew 28, 19, go, therefore, and make, say the word with me, disciples. disciples. And these last three weeks have been all about disciple making. Typically, what we would do on a Sunday morning is we'd teach through um, a book of the Bible. We'd open up a certain text. We'd go through it. The last three weeks have been much more focused on training. Uh, the first week was talking about discipleship and our strategic plan as a church, that everything from our staffing to our budgeting to our ministries, we are reprocessing through the grid of discipleship. Last week, we talked about how to make disciples, uh, the terms of discipleship, so that you could have a tool in your pocket, but also know how we're going to be rethinking every ministry of our church so that we might accomplish the vision Jesus gave to us. We cannot control what 2021 is going to look like, uh, but we can be laser beam focused on this. And today, um, this is a personal training for each one of you. Uh, This is all about how to be a disciple of Jesus. You may be new with us. Uh, Allow me to just take a minute and review a couple simple things about discipleship. Uh, What is a disciple? Well, it comes from this Hebrew word called Talmud. And a Talmud, very simply, is a student, a young Jewish boy or young man, uh, a student who is devoted to complete imitation of his rabbi. And this is the objective. If you are going to be a disciple, you devoted your life to this. A Talmud was chosen to imitate. They were not chosen to become their best self, They were chosen to imitate their rabbi. So Matthew chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, Jesus talks about this first century relationship. He says this, a disciple is not above his teacher, obviously. He says, it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher. And this is the heartbeat behind discipleship. I want to imitate and be like my teacher. So a disciple of Jesus, we've talked about every week, is committed to imitating three things. Number one, the disciple of Jesus is committed to imitating the mind of Jesus. What does he think? How does he process? What does he love? The heart of Jesus. What breaks his heart? What is he passionate about? And the life of Jesus, what does he do? How does he love? How does he make disciples? And so as a follower of Jesus, this is our life commitment. When you came to Christ, many of you thought you were just getting out of hell. Maybe you acknowledge a few things about who Jesus was enough for you to be saved. But really the point of coming to faith in Christ is to imitate Christ. It is to be a disciple and then eventually to grow in your faith and make 
disciples. So to help us uh, uh, train on this subject, I want to ask you a question. All right, if you had to make a list of the top five things that are the most important to you in this world other than specific people, what would be on this list? Now that is an, feels like an impossible question to ask or to answer. Uh, last year, Pastor Matt Souls had uh, training time with our staff and he gave everybody 90 to 100 cards and each of these cards had a word on it. And he told us, you have to pick five of these words, the five that are the most important to you. Here are a handful of examples of words that were on these cards. Family, discipline, relationships, food, that one made it on my last five, exercise, rest, entertainment, adventure. And it was gut-wrenching because you got, you know, you got down to like 50 and you're like, all right, I got 50 down. Now I got to break this 50 to five. And then we ended up getting down to like 10 or 12 of them. And I'm like, I don't know how I can do this. And then finally we broke it down. We got down to like five core values. These are the things of all the values I have. And I have a lot of values. These are the five that are the most important to me. If I had to pick and choose five things that were the nearest and dearest to my heart, of which you should be able to look at my life, my lifestyle, my behavior, my decisions should reflect on what these values are. And it was very interesting because there was very little overlap amongst our staff. Each of us had a very different, unique set of personal values, but even just understanding what motivated a person and what they valued gave so much empathy and understanding in terms of how we related to them or when we disagreed or how we made decisions. Now, when you get down to the end of these five values, whatever you put there, these are what we're going to call core values. It doesn't mean they're your only values. It just means they're the most important values. There's another way to figure out your core values. Um, think about over the last six months to a year, think about the things that have angered you the most, things that have just been the most irritating to you personally. Um, you got that in your brain, one or two of them? Behind every experience of anger is typically a value, and the deeper the anger, the higher the value. Most of the time, anger... Uh, reflects a violation of a value. Now, most people don't take the time to actually put to paper their core values, but once you do, especially if you're dating somebody and you're able to identify, these are like five things that are really important to me. Are they important to you? To look at your boyfriend or girlfriend or fiance's core values, it's a trip. Can you get behind for the rest of your life their top five values? It's a, it's a good question. Uh, Yesterday, last night, I had one of my top five personal values tested. I was at Home Depot, and uh, you know when you get wood at Home Depot, you're supposed to put it on the wood carts? I didn't do that. I put it on a regular shopping cart. Not a smart move. And uh, so I am about 40 feet away from the checkout, and then I'm 30 feet, I'm 20 feet, and I see in the distance this woman. And I, I had this thought, Michael, she might show up at church tomorrow, so it'd be really, really nice, whatever is about to happen. <laughs> so I see this woman, and she is trucking it. And I'm like, all right, it's okay. Ten feet away. And I, I think she wants to check out before me. And I'm like, okay, all you got to do is ask. Like, if you're in a hurry, you can totally go. Like, no big deal. Now, I've got this cart of wood. And if you don't put the wood in the right cart, you stop too abruptly, what happens to all the wood? It did happen twice in my time at Home Depot. It fell off the cart twice. And I still was too stubborn to go all the way to the other side of the store or lazy and get the right kind of cart. So anyways, I'm sitting there and right before I'm about to walk around the corner to go into the checkout lane, she just scrolls right over and she gets right in there, doesn't even acknowledge my presence. Now, here's what I felt deep down inside of myself. Anger. 
all of a sudden, I started rehearsing all of these things I want to say to this woman. Now, just context. I'm hangry. I'm super hungry. I've been working all day long, like outside. I'm just like, I'm just hungry. I'm tired. I'm hungry. I want to get out of this line. This woman cuts in front of me and I'm feeling all these feels. And, and, and I'm thinking to myself, you know what? Like, listen, lady, like if you just wanted, you could have asked, why did you do this? Did you do this? So you're going to demand first. What would this world be like if everybody demanded first place? I'm going in front of you. And again, the sermons are like, I got a lot of sermons in my, in my broken little head. So, uh, but I didn't. And uh, I waited. And then a couple seconds later, like 10 seconds later, her husband meanders over. He walks in front of me and he checks something out. And, and again, I'm just like, my bones are like, what it was, and I got in the car and I thought, why am I so angry? Well, I'm angry because she violated one of my top personal values, and that is the value of deference. Now, that may not be your top personal value, but for me, this idea of not demanding your way first has been one of the values that has guided my life really over the last 20 years. Uh, I had been around so many people who demanded first and best that it just irritated me enough that I kind of committed my life to practicing deference as much as I could. Now, if you're with me and we're, say, we're at a friend's house and there's food, I may be a little less deferent. But by and large, <laughs> other than that, I feel like a very deferent person. And, uh, but I found, like, I was like, wow, you know what? She's violating one of my core values. Now, here's a little trick for you. When you start studying the life of Christ, what you're going to start finding is that Jesus has a whole bunch of values, but he's got some really unique core values. He's got things that rise above all the rest. And often you can find Jesus's values by the things he gets the most angry at, by the things that he applauds the loudest and publicly, the things he repeats regularly in his teaching. And so here's what we're going to do today. We're going to study uh, Jesus's six highest core, va- sorry, five highest core values. Again, does Jesus have other values than this? The answer is 100%. But if we could really boil it down, and I think if we gave Jesus 100 pieces of paper, these would be the five that he would land with. Now, core values are very important to identify. Uh, Most people don't, but if you have a business, if you lead a team, an organization, a ministry, knowing your core values is really important for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, it really does set you apart from others. So like, what makes this thing unique? What is really important? What is the heartbeat of this team, organization, company, group, or ministry? The second thing core values do is they allow others to enter into your team or your community, your organization, or your culture or entity with ease and understanding. You ever feel like you walk into like a friend group and you don't know all the rules and you stumble all over yourself and like make problems? What core values do is it allows other people to know what is important to you so they can adjust their behavior and expectations accordingly. Core values also identify the behaviors that we celebrate and we avoid. And so I think by taking Jesus's core values and giving vocabulary to them, it really does help us understand what it is like to be like Jesus, to be around Jesus, what was really important to him, how he functioned. And and I think this is going to be really helpful for you. Now, here's just a question. If Jesus has a core value and you're a Talmud, a disciple of Jesus, should it be your core value? The answer, everybody, is yes. Here's, here's kind of the discrepancy that we experience quite often with American Christians now. We'll see Jesus has a value for something. And we're like, eh, take it or leave it. Like, I'll get to that later. And really the goal of this sermon is to help you be a disciple of Jesus. It's to help you get into his head, his heart, and his life. 
so that you can understand what is most important to him so that you can therefore go imitate it. There's going to be a couple reactions and responses to this message. Uh, One is you're going to see a vast discrepancy between Jesus's highest values and your highest values. And the goal of this is not condemnation, but for you to see that so that you can begin the process of repenting and putting Jesus's values as your values. That's going to be a process. You might need some help with that. We'd love to help you with that. There's going to be another response, which is, you know what? Like by and large, like you really, your heart wants these things, but your lifestyle, it's struggling to catch up to these. You know, the person who says they value one thing, but then they don't do it. Like this is very real with everybody. And so there might be some like pretty big discrepancy between your current lifestyle and the things that you really do value and want to value. And there's an opportunity there for repentance to kind of bridge the gap. Uh, There's a third, I think, experience that people will have. And and probably if you're a little bit more mature in the faith, you're going to hear these values consolidated. And you're going to just find great encouragement because as the Spirit has been sanctifying you and transforming you and working in your life, you're finding that these really are your heartbeat. And what you've been also finding is that your life has started to really pursue these very practically on the ground. Uh, no matter where the discrepancy is, I just have good news. If you place your faith in Jesus, the blood of Christ covers you. The Spirit of God wants to help you and support you. And here's a big question for you. I know you hear this from me every week, but what is one next step that you can take from this message? All right, core value, number one of Jesus. If you've got a pen and paper, take that out. You've got your phone, take notes. If you want the notes from this, I can send them to you um, anytime. Value number one, submission to the Bible as his authority. Jesus' value, number one, submission to the Bible as his authority. Jesus saw every single text of Scripture as being divinely inspired by God and to be obeyed, without question. Whether he liked it, whether he felt like it, in Jesus' worldview, the Bible is true. It is his authority, All other truth claims get filtered through the word of God. So if you're going to follow Jesus, you are going to agree with Jesus that the Bible is now your sole authority. Matthew chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus is early on in his earthly ministry, and and religious leaders are accusing Jesus. They're saying, um, you are not obeying all of the Bible, and you are disobeying some really important parts of it. Now, Did Jesus disobey ever any part of the Bible ever once? The answer is no. In fact, core to the Christian doctrine is that he's fully God. He's perfect, sinless, and flawless. That's essential. That's a non-negotiable for Jesus. So Jesus actually, in a little bit of a defense posture, here's what he says. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, the most insignificant, the ones that people are like, ah, it's not as big of a deal as the other ones, and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of God, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus, I mean, we could have, I'm cherry picking scriptures here. There are so many scriptures about his view of the authority of God's word and his submission to it. Jesus's posture was one of whatever the father tells me to do, either by the spirit or through the word, I'm committed to submitting myself under the word, the authority of the word of God. All right, let's pause for a moment. You're a Christian. You've committed your life to following Christ. And you hear this value that no matter what the Bible says, I'm going to submit, I'm going to obey. And this can feel very oppressive, too big. Like 
there's so much sin inside of me. I know that I'm going to walk out of this room and maybe even right now in the middle of it, like you're thinking sinful thoughts about someone here or me or something, right? And you're like, I, I, I'm having a hard enough time obeying now, <laughs> right? I want to go take a nap. I don't even want to be here. I'd rather go play video games or something. I'm having a hard enough time just obeying being present at church, not forsaking the gathering of together, whether online or in person. Like, how, how am I going to walk out of here and not feel crushed by this? I think one, something really important to understand is that Jesus was committed to obeying every aspect of scripture as long as it was rightly interpreted and applied. So in the first century, they had a huge issue. The huge issue was religious leaders um, adding, adding, adding. You must. It's the word and, 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 and. And you're not godly unless you do not just the word, but all these extra things that I am teaching you. And all of these burdens from these pharisaical teachers became this, this oppression on the people. And, and Jesus came in and Jesus didn't play any of the games. He actually wasn't interested in all their extra rules and laws. He was very faithful to the text and to the implication and application of the actual text itself. He rose above all of this legalism. And I think in the American church, many of you think you're disobeying God's word and you're actually just disobeying a rule made up by another person. And so Christians are bearing this guilt on themselves for things Jesus honestly doesn't even care about. So I think Jesus is very, very focused on teaching and explaining and applying the scriptures for three years to his disciples because he has to undo all of their Jewish legalism. And there's a bunch of you who you come to church, right? And there are all of these things from your past that you have to undo. When we talk about obeying the word of God, I don't mean obeying all the rules and laws of your mom and dad's church. We're talking about the authority of the word of God itself, not going above it, beyond it, under it, around it. And Jesus is just passionate about making sure he dismantles their wrong notions because they are oppressive and rightly explaining what the word meant. One of my favorite texts, Matthew chapter 11, you'll know this. Jesus is contrasting his teaching with the teaching of the Pharisees. And his teaching is 100% consistent with the word of God. But there's a difference between his teaching and the teaching of the Pharisees. And he says this, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. He's not talking about work labor. He's talking about those who are working to do good works to earn God's favor. Come to me, all of you who are burdened with trying to do enough good works to make God like you and to make yourself right with God, following all the rules of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the priests. Are you done with all their extra rules? Are you tired? Then come to me. I will give you rest. And then he says, take my yoke upon you. Let's spell the word. Y-O-K-E. The yoke from a chicken egg or any other egg is Y-O-L-K. This is Y-O-K-E. Take my yoke. It's a Jewish word. It actually literally meant the thing that went on top of an oxen that, would, that they would carry stuff with. But it became a, a term for the totality of a rabbi's teaching. All of their rules and laws and teaching. And he says, take my teaching upon you. Take my yoke upon, upon you. Learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And if you take my teaching upon you, it does not oppress. It is not a burden. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke, my teaching is, it's actually easy. And my burden is light. Here's what we find. Obedience to God's word is easy for the soul. Don't, don't get me wrong. 
Do you want to live in the flesh sometimes and be ridiculous and rebel and all that other stuff? Yes. But when the soul obeys God's word, it's like life. It's like breathing fresh life into the human soul. And he's like, listen, if you follow the legalistic, pharisaical laws, they just crush you. They control you. They keep you down. It's never enough. It's never enough. But when you follow my yoke, my teaching, your soul comes to life. What a gift. So Jesus, here's a practice. We'll, we'll um, share with you a practice at the end of each one of these values. Jesus' followers study and obey God's word. This is so simple. I'm just going to ask you a question. Do you regularly study God's word? Don't answer it out loud. It's rhetorical. This is what Jesus' followers do. And when we see what the word says and it is rightly understood and applied, we do it. Is it inconvenient? All the time. Does it grind on my flesh? Constantly. Did I want to like have some like real words that lady at Home Depot? I was hangry. Remember that? Okay. Yes. But when God's word tells me to do something or tells me not to do something, I recognize that it's life for my soul and I submit my life and my mind and my heart under the authority of God's word. Value number two. Protecting the exploited least. Uh, Matthew chapter 25, verse 40. If you want to open your Bibles there, um, I'll read it here. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And pause before we go further. Who specifically are the least? Uh, and the text we're about to read, there's a handful of people listed. I'm going to give you kind of an overview from Jesus's general teaching of who Jesus would consider the least. Number one, the poor and the starving. Number two, the refugee. Number three, the imprisoned. And the reason the imprisoned is here is because when you went to Roman prison, unless someone brought you food or medication, you would die. They did not feed you. They did not care for you. They put you in a cellar. And unless somebody took care of you, you would inevitably starve to death. And so who were the people who had no advocate for themselves? The least, it would have been those in prison. The sick, particularly the sick who were unable to care for themselves or maybe even get out of the house. Widows, and especially in this culture, widows lost their provision from their husbands. The fatherless, this is an Old Testament principle um, all throughout the prophets that the person who grows up without a father has infinitely more difficult time spiritually, emotionally, every level. And so there's this special sensitivity to those who don't have a father who are young that we care for. And then there's this category generally of children, whether they're in the womb or not. Jesus is passionate about protecting those who he calls the least, those who don't have an advocate. They're vulnerable without an advocate. And so the church rises up. This is what we do. When we see the least, we intervene. Whenever Jesus sees the least, he kind of stops what he's doing. He intentionally moves towards that person and he intervenes. This is what the church should be known for. By the way, the least are all around us. They're all around us. But listen, listen to what happens next in verse 41, Matthew chapter 25. Jesus gets intensely angry. Remember I said, whenever, whenever Jesus gets angry, I want you to pay attention because probably what you're uncovering here is a value. 
He says, then I will say to those on his, he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you curse it, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Okay, what could possibly have made Jesus get angry enough to threaten somebody and basically tell them, you will go to hell now? Here's what it is. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 6, there's this really interesting text. Jesus is talking about little children and about those who make little children stumble. Listen to what he says. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Could you imagine publicly saying that out loud to somebody? All right, now we're going to do a little exercise, okay? You take your pointer finger, okay? Point it in the direction that most people think hell is located. Down, correct? If you were a Jew in the first century, you would have taken your finger, you would have walked to the edge of the sea or the ocean, and you would have pointed to the bottom of it because at the bottom of the ocean was their conception of location of hell. So he says to them, if you make somebody stumble who's a little one, it would be better for you to have a gray millstone fastened on your neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. I will send you to hell is his threat. Okay, when Jesus threatens to send people to hell, do you think we're like knocking at the door of a core value? <laughs> we, we might be. And here's his value, protecting the exploited least. Now, who made Jesus the most angry? It was people, powerful people, who oppressed in the name of God. So Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes. It's interesting. Jesus gets like 10x angrier at them than he does Roman government officials who are crucifying people, Pontius, Herod, etc. There is something unique about powerful people who oppress in the name of God. Uh, Matthew 23, you should just go read it. Um, it's a passage of woes. Jesus is publicly teaching. There are all these people around and there are scribes and Pharisees listening, trying to catch him to ultimately kill him. And in this passage, here are all the names Jesus calls this group of people. He calls them hypocrite multiple times. Children of hell, blind guides, blind fools, blind men, whitewashed tombs, serpents, and brood of vipers publicly in front of everybody. He absolutely could not stand what these people were doing and their exploitation of the least and the poor in the name of God. Here's the practice. Jesus' followers intentionally protect the least around them. When we find somebody who meets any of these criteria, we pause. We lean in. Now, is it awkward? For sure. Being a Christian is awkward like every other day of the week. We just lean in. And we pursue and we do whatever we can to help, support, lift up, serve, train, engage. Uh, so as a church, what we try to do is build bridges between your life and those who the Bible would call the least. And so yesterday we had a day of service. There are people all over our community who are struggling, whose lives are falling apart. They've lost their job. They're losing their families. They're losing their homes. Like things are very hard for many people. And as these opportunities come in, we just say, we're going to mobilize. We're going to bring the full energy and resources of our church together. And we're going to do the best we can to love and to serve. Sometimes it's little things 
Sometimes it's just fixing something in their yard. Sometimes it's an entire like intervention in their life and renovation of how they think about their entire life. Sometimes it's just supporting them with meals on a regular basis. Sometimes it's job support. I mean, all over the board, the things that we are able to do just to lean in and to help. We partner with a ministry called Rahab's Daughters. They uh, enter into the lives of women and children who are trafficked. And, and so come January again, we're going to have a call center. And, and the call center is exhausting. It's long. It's all night long. It's, it's grueling to the soul. But I'm telling you, like, we have this opportunity to partner with this incredible ministry to bring real, actual hope and opportunity for women and children who are trafficked to get out of that circumstance. And so we support, we support a group of people who are on the ground at the Super Bowl or at different sporting events all over the world, trying to make sure that they have support from where we're at so they can do their job and enter into very dark places and free people. Why do we do that? Because if Jesus saw it, he would just stop and go do it. Now the world is a lot more complex now, but we have the ability to, as a, as a church to see these things, organize, support. And so we're really excited to partner with Rahab's Daughters. Hope for Kids. We've supported uh, a sister church in Haiti for 25 years, had a great ministry partnership and friendship with them. And there are, I think, over 180 children in this church per year that we support. And without our support, these kids don't have a Christian education, let alone any education. Um, Food, relationships with older Christian men and women. I mean, just the unbelievable opportunities that we're able to provide for 180 plus kids to actually have their lives transformed. Why do we do this? Because when we have an opportunity just to enter and engage the life of the least, we do it. We do it. Whether it's through a ministry, through a partnership, or through somebody in our life. And so if you're going to follow Jesus, open your eyes. Just see what's happening. And when you see something, do the weird, awkward thing. Engage and lean in and do whatever you can. Value number three. Faith that trusts in difficulty. It should not surprise you that Jesus, whenever he sees faith or trust, especially in really hard circumstances, he loves it. If the last value really highlighted things that angered Jesus, this is one of those values where you get to see things that bring delight to the soul of Jesus. Uh, I'm going to read uh, through three stories in the book of Matthew. They're not very long, and I want you to notice the common theme in these. Uh, Matthew chapter 8, verse 5, when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion, this is Roman, came forward to him, appealing to him. He said this, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have, come un- uh, to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. By the way, that is value language. When Jesus heard this, he marveled, and he said to those who followed him, like he stops, right? He says, all right, disciples, all of you, come over here, and I want you to look at this guy, not even a Jew, and I want you to... Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. He just stops and he brags on this guy. When Jesus stops and brags on somebody publicly, like clue in, we're knocking at the door of a core value here. One chapter later, Matthew chapter 9, verse 2, Behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying in a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, 
your sins are forgiven. Later in chapter 9, verse 20, behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years, she's been isolated, separated from people for 12 years, ostracized, not allowed to the temple, came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, for she said to herself, this is just in her mind, remember Jesus knows the thoughts you think, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Her complete confidence in Jesus is remarkable. Jesus turned, seeing her, and said, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. What is, what is this faith? It's living with extreme confidence in God during life's darkest times. So here's a practice. Jesus' followers run to God in life's darkest moments. This is what we do. Your life is going to go through terrible, terrible, terrible things. Everybody will, inevitably. And when someone goes through immense difficulty and they run to God, Jesus is like, yes. He loves it. So let me give you some illustrations and options. So if you were suffering terribly, as the centurion's servant was, would you wag or worship? What happens in suffering is so often believers, it's like we lose our head. If you loved me, you would. If you were really good, you would take this from me. If, if you knew what was best, you would do what I say because even though you're infinite in knowledge, you should listen to a peon like me who's filled with rage and anger, right? Something like that. Or would you worship? So if you're paralyzed, I mean, imagine for most of your life, you're paralyzed. You literally cannot go anywhere unless somebody takes you. Would you wag your finger at God or would you worship? If you loved me, you would heal me. You would have never made me like this. I'm useless. There's no point to me. It'd be better to be dead than to be in this position. Wag. Or do you worship? If you had an illness that kept you away from people, made you an outcast, kept you away from even being around the people of God, made you a, a mockery to them, would you wag your finger at God? Would you say, you don't love me. If you did love me, you're not good. If you were good, then you would. Or would you worship him? I love this practice because what Jesus loves, one of his highest values is that in your darkest moments, you run to him. The Garden of Gethsemane is, I think, become one of the most beautiful illustrations of so much of what Jesus values. And he's in his darkest moment. He's sweating blood. He's filled with anxiety. He's about to endure and take upon himself the full wrath of God on his body and his soul and emotions. He is nervous and anxious. You see the full humanity of Christ burgeoning forth. And where does he run? He runs to his heavenly father. He's practicing what he's been preaching. What he's been applauding, he's living out. Value number four. Daily intimacy with his father. I'm going to read just a handful of texts quickly here. Luke 5, 16. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. And as Luke is actually reflecting on this, he's, he's talking about what Jesus did on a regular basis. Like all of a sudden you'd be with Jesus and he would be gone. Where'd he go? He's at a desolate place to pray. 
Mark 1.35, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and he went out to a desolate place and there he prayed, Luke 6.12. In these days, not meaning not just one time, but repeatedly, he went out to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer to God. John 14.31, Jesus says, I do as, my, as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. It was of highest value to Jesus. And it seems from the authors of the Gospels that daily Jesus would find a desolate place, a place without distraction, where he would be alone and he could just relate and talk to God. And it would say regularly that he would go pray. Now, the idea I think that people have is that Jesus, when he prayed, he'd be like this formal articulation. In fact, every time we have Jesus's prayers recorded, they are not formal. The, you know the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, etc. People think you're supposed to pray like that. No, he's showing them the major categories of prayer. When you actually read the prayers of Jesus, they are raw, they are transparent, they are vulnerable, they are real. He has a very honest prayer life, and he did this so the disciples could hear it, model it, document it, so that we would know prayer lives are not supposed to be rote recitations of old people's prayers as a basis or default. It's supposed to be you pouring your heart out to God and talking to him as a child does to a father whom they feel safe and they love. And so this is one of his highest values. Healthy relationships, by the way, require three things. Time, transparency, and trust. For most Christians... You are transparent with God. In fact, he's the only one you're honest with. And you do, you trust him. But when you look at the time part of it, you do not have a regular time, if not daily, where it's you and God and your personal relationship with God is being invested in. For, for Jesus, this is just one of his highest values. Like you'd be walking with him like, where is he? He's praying. Because this is just so important to him. Here's the practice. Jesus followers daily pursue God through prayer. Is this so simple? It's not meant to be rocket science. It's just what we do. Because it's what Jesus did. Value number five. Lastly, but not least. Intentionally bringing the kingdom of God to earth. What is a kingdom? A kingdom is the scope of one's reign. Where is Jesus's kingdom? It is the places of this world that are under his lordship currently. So if you have placed your faith in Jesus, you now live under the kingdom of God. Do you always act like you're living under the kingdom of God? <laughs> no. But you are under the kingdom of God. And you have a joy, a responsibility. And this responsibility is to bring the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven to earth. Every person who trusts in Jesus Christ, the kingdom of heaven is brought to earth and the kingdom spreads and takes over the kingdom of darkness person by person, soul by soul, life by life, culture by culture. And so let me give you a little exercise. I want you to just choose one of the following to bring under the reign of the kingdom of God. Here's one, a broken relationship. If you have a broken relationship, is that relationship under the reign of the kingdom of God? No, the kingdom of God isn't controlling it. It's not under its jurisdiction. So here's what Christians do. When we find a broken relationship, as far as it depends on us, we pursue peace with all men and we seek to bring this relationship under the dom dominion or domain or jurisdiction of the kingdom of God. A broken work environment. Some of you actually have the authority to redeem and make right better work environments. Some of your work environments are backbiting, gossip, slander, 
definitely no deference, self-promoting. Some of you actually have the ability, even if it's just in your little sphere, to bring the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God to earth in that place, in that small place right there and right then. Maybe it's an aspect of your home life where maybe everyone in your home are believers, but there are aspects of your home that are not glorifying to God. And Jesus is like, I want the kingdom of God to reign in this part of your home. It might be your entertainment. It might be the way you discipline. It might be your technology. It might be how you spend your time. It might be your, your routines. I don't know what it is, but maybe there's an aspect of your home where, where Jesus is saying, no, this, this actually is not being ruled and reigned by me and my kingdom. This is actually under the kingdom of darkness. That's influencing. And we want to get the kingdom of darkness out of your home. Maybe it's a broken aspect of your church. Uh, Maybe there's some aspect of the church that is actually broken and you have the ability to bring the kingdom of God into this place to make it so that it brings God more glory. So here's the, the practice. Jesus' followers seek to bring brokenness under the kingdom of God. We seek to bring brokenness under the kingdom of God. Here's what that means. I want you to focus on the word seek. We are very aware that this world is broken and dark and our eyes are open to it. And when we see something that can be redeemed and healed, we enter into that space and we seek to bring it under the kingdom of God. First and foremost is people through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They can't believe unless they hear, and they can't hear unless somebody preaches. And so this is our our joy. This is the most effective way to bring people from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of God, as they hear the gospel and they believe in Jesus Christ for the very first time. All right, I want to share with you three so what's. We already had a bunch of so what's after each of these. Every one of those practices is a so what. But if we could kind of just rise above all of this, and I want to uh, encourage you with a couple of things. Number one. Decide your next step today. Jesus is very gracious. His yoke is his burden, it's light. When you sit under his teachings, the net result, if you are a disciple of his, should not be condemnation, but this idea of support and help. This is why you have the Holy Spirit, not to condemn you, but to convict you of sin so that he can help you and come alongside of you and champion you and encourage you. He's our teacher, our helper, our encourager. But decide what your next step is today. Make one decision. I mean, we've talked about a lot of things, but make one decision so that you can better imitate Jesus today. Number two, um, believe the gospel. If you have never trusted in Jesus, if you have never placed your faith in him, the way you become a disciple is only and ever by trusting in Christ. That is it. Salvation and forgiveness A relationship with God is offered to anyone and everyone who confesses their sin and trusts in Christ. Do you believe today that that you are a sinner who's fallen short of God's glory? Do you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins? Do you believe God raised him from the dead? He's not just another dead guy. Do you believe that he's coming back? Do you believe that salvation isn't just for people who accrue good works, but for people who trust in Christ? Like if you're there today, I wanna just challenge you, believe in Jesus Christ for the very first time and you will become his Talmud, his disciple. He will save you and forgive you and redeem you and give you the spirit and the people and the word. And now here's your job. Imitate your rabbi, imitate your master, imitate Christ. And finally, this third, so what, takes us right into communion. I wanna just encourage you, remember the gospel. 
The gospel declares to you, and I think we forget this sometimes, the gospel declares to you, you are a sinner and I am a sinner and everything we do is somehow infected with sin. And as you look at this like standard, if you will, of the core values of Jesus, there will be a discrepancy between Jesus and you. And he loves you anyways and the blood of Christ covers you and he is supporting you and helping you. If you leave a discussion on the values of Jesus compared to your personal life values and you leave in a spirit of condemnation, we are not articulating or understanding the gospel correctly. The gospel for the rest of your life will declare to you that you are a sinner who's fallen short of the glory of God. And until this life is over, you will struggle with sin. And that is not the point. The point is that God loves you. The point is that the blood of the cross covers you. The point is that God is supporting you. And here's the net result of this. Remember the gospel. God already knows your imperfections and your inadequacies and where you fall short. But now we are moving in a trajectory. We are becoming more like Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so if you're, if you're here and you're just experiencing condemnation or guilt or this overwhelming sense of giving up, um, I don't think you're understanding the heart of Jesus. Jesus says, come to me. If you're heavy and you're burdened, come to me. My teaching, my yoke, the things I'm asking you to do will breathe life into your soul. So right under your chair are um, communion elements. You'll see one cup and underneath is the juice and there's a wafer on the top. And uh, there are a couple questions that people have in communion when they come to Village Church. One of them is, can my kids take communion? Here are the rules for kids. Two rules. Number one, if your mom and dad say that you can have it, you can have it. Um, kids, the second rule is you have to have personally trusted in Jesus. So if you've done that and your mom and dad are okay with it, then we encourage you to partake with us. If you're coming here from a different church, you may not call Village Church your home. Uh, we want to invite you, if you've trusted in Christ, to partake of communion with us. We are one in Christ. If you're here and uh, maybe you got dragged here by a family member or a friend, maybe you're just searching, but you've yet to trust in Christ, um, here's our ask of you. Our ask is that you not partake of communion. Nobody will pay attention. Nobody's going to like stare at you. But the reason we do that is because to partake of these elements is to make a nonverbal declaration. It is to declare that you believe you're a sinner. To partake of these elements is to, de- is to declare that Jesus is your God. You believe he died on the cross for your sins. You believe in the resurrection. You believe salvation is not by works, but by faith in Christ. You believe he's coming back. I mean, these are pretty big declarations. So if you're not ready to make that declaration, we can just ask you not to partake. But maybe today, this is the first time, and you're like, I want to trust in Christ. I want to become a Christian. I want to have Jesus be my rabbi, my leader, my God, my savior. Well, then in that case, I want to encourage you, maybe for the very first time, take the elements and partake of them. Because as you partake of them, This is your maybe first declaration that you believe in Jesus Christ and you are trusting him for your salvation through faith. And if that's a decision you want to make today, I just want to encourage you. Would you come talk to one of us? We'd love to support you and encourage you in any way that we possibly can. So what we're going to do is we're going to have a time of just silence, be an opportunity for you to just talk with God. Um, At the end of that, I'm going to read some scripture and then we're going to partake together as a symbol of our unity in Jesus. Let's have some time along with the Lord.